Welcome to You, Me, Empathy. Thank you for listening. We would like to remind you that this podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Known as just a silly boy with a feely heart. Please consider supporting the show. Check us out on Patreon or simply leave a review on iTunes. Here is your host and creator of the show, Known Wells. Hello, feely humans. Welcome to another episode of Yumi Empathy. My name is Known Wells, and it is episode 101 on Empathy in Language with Aaron McKeon. Aaron is the founder of WordNick, which is a online dictionary. She is a lexicographer and beautiful feely human, and she created WordNick over 10 years, about 10 years ago now. And it's it's a it's a beautiful platform that's very collaborative and inclusive, and it's about the abundance uh, in language and not the scarcity. And we talk a lot about that. Um, I have adopted uh, the word empathy, duh, uh, over at WordNick, and you can adopt a word too. And I I recommend that you do. It's it's a great organization, and Aaron is doing work, uh, good work, and. Uh, so, yeah, do that. Go to wordnick.com and you can learn more about that. But uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a good one. It's all about language. It gets nerdy. Erin is a delight. I love her. Um, before we get to the episode, though, I did want to uh, read a couple of new reviews. A couple of short ones. Uh, this is from Minter Dial. And hello, Minter, if you're listening. Minter uh, will be a guest on this podcast soon. We've recorded uh, many months ago, and uh, he should be out in a few weeks, maybe, or maybe next month. Anyways, Minter leaves a review, the title of which is Known Tackles This Important Subject with Candor and Tact. Known Wells' mission is personal and important, a very pertinent podcast for our time. Thank you, Minter. That's very delightful. I appreciate you. And this uh, review, the subject of which says thank you and it's by theater hippie i love that and the review is excellent podcast on did and thank you theater hippie because i loved my conversation with the copacetic system and if you haven't listened to that episode dear feely human go back and do so i don't remember which episode uh it's a few episodes ago with uh the copacetic system they have uh, dissociative identity disorder. That's what DID stands for. And it was a really wonderful conversation. So go back and listen. And thank you, Theater, Hipp- Theater Hippie, for that lovely review. And listener, you can leave a review too if you go to Apple Podcasts, search for Yumi Empathy. Give me uh, the stars that you want and leave a nice review. It takes a couple of minutes and it helps out the show. It truly does help out the show. I know I say that, but it does help out the show. It uh, Apple does their weird algorithm thing and, and potentially uh, more listeners can be tuned into empathy, which is what we want, a more empathetic, feely world, right? So go do that. Leave a review and I'll read it here on my intros. Okay. Shall we get to the episode? Let's do that. This is episode 101 about empathy in language with Aaron McKeon of Wordnik.
A podcast about exploring the struggles we face in our day to day lives as humans trying to get by on this wondrous and overwhelming pale blue dot. The intent of Yumi Empathy is to talk openly without judgment about our mental health, our neuroses, our shared anxieties and worries, to create a dialogue that is vulnerable and deeply human and empathetic, and to share that dialogue with others to inspire emotional and cognitive collaboration and insight so we can, hand in hand, Break down the stigma that make us feel shame and guilt for struggling, for feeling our feelings, for being feely humans. Yumi Empathy is a safe, friendly space designed to inspire the beauty in each of us. Today, I'm nerding out with coder, developer, writer, TED speaker, lexicographer, and founder of my favorite online dictionary, Wordnik. It's Aaron McKean. Hello, Aaron. Hey, thank you so much for for talking with me. Oh, of course. I'm so happy to have you. I've been a big fan of yours from afar for a while and have been uh, supporting the lovely Wordnik for some time now. It's just awesome. So I'm 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 feel I feel very grateful to have you. Well, I feel very grateful for your support of Wordnik. Uh known has adopted the word empathy on the site. It always makes me happy when words that I think um, are especially useful or beautiful get adopted. It's yeah. kind of like seeing your favorite puppy at the pound, like uh-huh. go home, yeah. <laughs> good home. <laughs> I love that. I love that way of putting it. Um, yeah, no, I, there was a time I had uh, adopted poppycock and then I, I changed over to empathy. <laughs> yeah, they're both good words. Indeed. <laughs> I'm definitely like the we rate dogs of words, though. They're Mm. all like 12 out of 10. Sure. Yeah. Well, you are the word queen. Um, (laughs) And I've had another word queen on this show before, uh, my friend Corey Stamper. I don't know if you're... Oh, I love Corey. Yeah. She's a delight. I wish that I had the like... I wish I could deliver smackdowns to the ignorant as (laughs) kindly as she does. She is quite good at that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I tend to like splutter a little bit <laughs> or just be like, I can't even believe you asked that question. But yeah. she actually like helps people learn. She really does. She really does. Yeah. I, I, Corey's, Corey's a gem of a human. Um, and as you are, Aaron, and um, we'll get into your story, but we always kick off the show um, with just an emotional check-in. How are, how are you feeling? I am feeling pretty cheerful today. But that is kind of my baseline. Okay. Which sounds good, but can sometimes be bad. <laughs> How do you mean? <laughs> I um, I can often be inappropriately cheerful. You know, okay. the world's falling apart around our ears, and I'm like, oh, but it's sunny outside. Sure, sure. <laughs> have you ever seen, uh, I don't know why this came to mind, have you ever seen the movie In Search of the Castaways? No. So it's like a... 50s or 1960s Disney film, uh, Disney produced film about it's <clears throat> it's an adventure tale uh, with these two kids and they go off with their like uncle or eccentric, uh, you know, relation relation of some kind. And there was this moment where 
they're in this tree, high up in this tree on the branches because a big flood is coming. And the uncle starts singing something along the lines of like, you know, if you're experiencing this pain, enjoy it. Um, you know, it's, and he's, he goes on and on about like all these scenarios. Like if you're in the tree and there's a flood, enjoy it. And it's always like, it always tickled me because, you know, you know, watching it as a kid, I was like, took it to dark places where it's like, if I'm being eaten by a crocodile, enjoy it. You know, things like that. <laughs> um, so are you kind of like that? <laughs> um, maybe a little bit, but yeah. also like... Uh, I don't know. It's kind of like um, I tend not to take things too seriously, probably even when I should. Mm. And I, when I was much younger, it was the opposite. Like everything was life or death. And now I'm kind of like, yeah, you know, is anybody actually going to die? Sure. Is it actually imminent? Um. Which is a little more comfortable, but also can be, um, I have to make sure that I make an effort to like, to understand when other people are very upset. I, I, yeah, I get this completely. And I feel like um, I'm in a similar place. And I, I think it's just life experience, maybe, um, under, like for me, I believe firmly that, you know, I don't really have much control but I do have control over my sort of what I bring to a situation. And I like, I like the fact that things are a little chaos. Like it, it brings me some comfort knowing that like, I don't really have control over things. And, and for me, that gives me some uh, like some respite that gives me like a, a bit of peace because I don't have to stress over the stuff, you know? Right. And I do feel that people don't understand that the, the inverse like the, the corollary of control is blame. Mm. If you have all the control, then if something goes wrong, then it's obviously your fault. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Control <laughs> is a, a, a common theme on this show. And I think when it comes to our emotions and our feelings and our mental health, it's, it's, uh, it's one that can lead us into pretty dark areas and, and a lot of self-hating areas for sure. Yeah. I mean, I do, I do like to have things under my control, but I'm trying to reduce the scope. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I once, uh, a couple years ago, I had um, a shoulder injury and nothing worked. And I finally broke down and went and had acupuncture, which worked like almost immediately in oh, a very wow. magical way. And the acupuncturist was very like she was very puzzled and uh, like my favorite part of the acupuncture was that my shoulder didn't hurt and I wasn't having pins and needles anymore. But my second favorite part of the acupuncture was asking her to explain like, Oh, okay. So why are you doing this? What makes like, basically I was asking her to talk me through what she was doing Sure. and I don't have any kind of fear needles or I was just really fascinated because it's really outside my like, experience of the world that sure. this would work yeah yeah and she was looking puzzled and i was asking her why do you look puzzled and, and she was like well you know all the things that i do that relieve your symptoms 
correlate with you being like a very liverish person. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. What does that actually mean? And he's like, oh, you know, liverish people are very like type A control freaks, but you're always so laid back and nice. And I was like, no, you don't understand. When I come here, everything is exactly as I want it. Mm. There's nothing to be control freaky about because it's already set up. Right. You know, as I would wish. That's interesting. Yeah, I, you know, so much of like stress comes from um, anticipating what will possibly be. You know, I I know that I do a lot of like projecting and and thinking like, oh, how is this going to be? Is it going to go my way? Is this experience going to be how I'm picturing it in my head? And that can be useful as like a mindfulness tool, but it also can be a little problematic because we we uh we make you know we make up things we we you know we anticipate things that maybe aren't in reality or um you know whatever um but it could be a crazy making experience if we if we get in our heads a little bit too much about it for sure yeah expectations right yeah absolutely um well, that's interesting. I, I, I did want to share a little bit of where I'm at. Um, so I had, I won't get into it fully here, but I had a pretty upsetting past weekend oh, um, wow. that really tested my um, just resolve and, and place as a human in a, in a, in a good way, but also like uh, I'll give the sort of broad brush strokes here. Um, had an experience with my mother, and she, you know, essentially um, said, "I I am a negative person, and this podcast is all about negativity." She said a bunch of other things that were very invalidating and and um, unfair, and not true, um, and vitriolic, but. Um, I am processing that. Like, that's where I am at emotionally. I've been processing it, writing it, and it, it will eventually be a, an episode of the podcast. But I wanted to bring it up because um, there is so much... Like, for me, this podcast is about meeting people where they are and connecting and empathy and compassion and accepting and accepting of ourselves. And I feel... Um, there's so much damage and stigma causing done when we aren't talking about the stuff, the inner workings of our heart, our mental health, all of that stuff. I feel, believe, I, and, I, and I, I firmly believe that talking about mental health reduces suffering. Like that is, that is my firm belief. And, um, so that experience over the weekend has sort of really kind of lit a, an additional fire in my belly to really pursue this stuff full forward. And, and I've been working on some other sort of business ideas that extend out of this podcast, which is exciting. But um, it was upsetting, but it was also a another reminder for me that this stuff is so needed. Um, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but like I just like I just... It's, it's what, it's everything. For me, it's everything. Empathy and meeting people where they are, it's, it's everything. And so, um, yeah, that's where I'm at. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm sorry that, 
I'm sorry that you have to like go through that. It can be so disappointing when the people that we, it's expectations again, right? The people Mm -hmm. that we expect to like love and understand us unconditionally, not only say things to us that are hurtful, but that kind of show that they don't understand us. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I thank you for that. And it's such like, it's such a, um, powerful thing when we can truly see each other and really let go of, as you said, expectations, uh, really let go of um, ego and really be a mirror for each other. Like that is such a beautiful place to be. And it's such a connecting place. Um, And I feel like that that's, that's the place we need to be for, for everyone. Um, But, but, I think at times we do encounter people who um, maybe can't go there yet or or don't know how or are so sort of lost in their own narrow views of the world that they can't, they're blinded to it, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it's hard because, you know, it's not like you can, it's not like you can force people to understand. No, no, you can't. And even if you could, it would not be ethical to no. do so. <laughs> no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. Um, yeah, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. I guess we just have to be examples and and believe in what we're doing, you know. Um, you know, my hope with, you know, these conversations and the conversations I have out in the world is like, yeah, change one person at a time, you know. Uh, let them see the power of this type of connecting one person at a time. That's all we can kind of do, maybe. I I agree. And I have to say that as, as someone who is, at least I assume, fairly neurotypical, mm. that I have just been so grateful to the people who are willing to share their experiences with mental illness, with neuroatypicality, with basically any modes that are outside my personal experience. Because... Um, it broadens everybody's world and it like nobody, I mean, very few, some people, some people wake up every day. Like I'm going to go out and be the biggest jerk I could be. Mm. But most people really, they want to be kind to the people around them. And if you don't understand the things that people can be going through, you could be an oblivious jerk pretty easily. Yeah. And like hearing people talk about, what kinds of anxieties they have or how certain environments are really tough on them because of things that they're going through. Um, that, that helps, (laughs) it helps me selfishly not be a jerk because I don't want to be a jerk. Yeah, no, it, it, I mean, it, and it allows us to like, I mean, it allows us to feel less alone and be like, Oh, like I, I can experience the thing that this person can experience it, experience it. Maybe they're processing in a way um, that's leading to maybe some uh, uh, behaviors that um, could be perceived as like negative or something. Um, and, and maybe I can do something differently with it or, but it just, I mean, it just really allows, it's like the great equalizer. It really allows us to see, ourselves in each other and it allows us to see different ways of living and, 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 and the feeling of being less alone is so empowering. Um, yeah. 
And it also keeps me from asking the, why don't they just question? Uh-huh. Yeah. Right? Why don't they just do things the same way that I do them? <laughs> sure. And I have definitely been on the receiving end of the, why don't you just? And like, for me, it's not that bad, right? I'm a, I'm a middle-aged white lady. Mm, and, yeah. you know, most of the world is set up for my convenience. Yes. And in the places where it's not, it's usually like people saying, why don't you just act more like a dude? And I try to say, well, you know, as much as I would like to do that, the world's not really set up for me to do that. And um, that's a very, like, difficult conversation to have. And I don't want to be like the person saying, why don't you just? Yeah, say. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm the middle-aged white dude. So I'm <laughs> like the king. <laughs> like, I, I'm, I'm like, set up for your king. Yeah, the world is set up exactly for me. And, you know, being aware of that privilege and being aware of that place in the world is, is essential in all of this, for sure. Um, let's, let's, let's get into, I, I want to um, get into your story a bit, uh, Aaron. You sent a really great talk you did um, uh, called Documentation as Practical Empathy, which I really, really enjoyed and appreciated. But before we sort of delve on that, I did want to understand a little bit about your own sort of mental health journey. Um, I like to uh, ask my guests, uh, could you give me a seminal moment or two uh, from your childhood, young adulthood, uh, wherever in your life that really speak to who you are today, a couple of moments that really stick out in your memory as being kind of impactful, impactful uh, toward your own mental health as it is today, toward your own sort of identity, um, a couple of moments that, uh, yeah, that stick out to you. Oh, oh that's a good question. Um, I don't know if it's a moment so much as um, my childhood I mean, I'm a pretty lucky person, and my childhood was pretty lucky, too, but there's a lot of alcoholism in my family, mm. and so I am completely teetotal. Never had a drink, never um, had any kind of recreational substances. Wow. That's hard to find. Well, you know, it's kind of like almost everything that was negative when I was growing up was basically due to alcohol mm. and I was like okay well that seems pretty straightforward to me <laughs> yeah you made um, that one-to-one -one connection yeah but of course you can only control yourself so like there have definitely been times like probably the first time I remember was in high school where I was around a bunch of people who were drinking and I was like well fine you know I'm not drinking no problem. But um, I often have a hard time telling when people are drunk. And you would think, oh, it's really obvious when people are drunk. But to me, it's not so much. Hmm. Um, and so, like, I would find myself having conversations with people where, like, they were obviously not going to remember it. But I didn't know that. Because <laughs> I was just, oh, okay, well, people sometimes forget things that you tell them. And it was like, it was, it took a long time for me to kind of, like figure out that controlling my intake was only part of like 
staying away from the situations that I don't enjoy. Gotcha. And so then it became like, okay, well, how do I control it even more? And I would be like, well, I don't really want to be around people who are indulging at all, but that's not really practical. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not really effective, right? Because you can't just get rid of things that you, like, never being around a person who's drunk or under the influence is not actually going to keep me from having to deal with people who have substance abuse problems. Sure. Because they act like drunks even when they're sober. And so, um, so I had to, like, get comfortable with the idea that I could be around people who were drinking and not drinking to excess. Mm -hmm. And probably the most difficult is, uh, has been talking about it with my child. Mm. So my son just turned 19. Oh, wow. And he lives in Canada. <laughs> he can drink, you know, he can drink now. Yeah. And I mean, he's been able to drink before. He's had a good, like, you know, my husband is from Milwaukee city of beer. So, um, we had a lot of conversations before our son was like old enough to have it be an issue about like, okay, well your personal position is never drink. That's not really going to be useful to him because he didn't grow up in the same environment you did. Yeah. That's um, a, I mean, I just want to point out that that's such a huge and beautiful like parenting moment to recognize that I was raised in a different environment than you are being raised in. I think a lot of parents, I'm not a parent, but this is what my perception is. A lot of parents don't make that distinction. <laughs> it is really hard. And sometimes you think, oh my goodness, like, uh, my parents were fairly religious Catholics, so I went to Catholic school off and on, and it was just assumed that you would go to Mass. And, and every once in a while, I'll say thing, something, and my son is like, I have no frame of reference for what you just said. And I was like, oh, yeah, because you didn't spend like a significant percentage of your life in Mass. Mm. Yeah. So you don't know this cultural reference. Right. And, <laughs> um, yeah. And so, like, I feel... I feel like it's been a lot of work for me to come to terms with the fact that although genetically maybe my offspring have a higher propensity towards, you know, problems with alcohol, that I can't just operate from the assumption that that's going to be the case. Right, right. Does your husband drink? Yeah. Okay. Um, and he, like one of the things that like made me realize that like, Oh, Hey, this is a pretty decent guy. <laughs> you know, <laughs> And you know, to use a little bit of understatement is that he was one of the first people we met in college and he was one of the few people in college. And I did not go to a party school who, when I said, I don't drink was just like, Oh yeah, cool. Like, I don't think he ever, I think once he said, Hey, wine tastes pretty good. Are you sure? And I was like, yeah, I'm just not feeling it. And that was it. That's nice. Yeah. Cause I did feel a lot of like, I still today as a, as a grown ass woman still <laughs> run into people at parties who are like, well, you know, don't you want to drink? And when I say no, they're just like, but it's great. 
And I was like, you know, I really enjoy roller skating, but I don't try and get you on eight wheels. <laughs> that, that's such a good analogy. Um, because, yeah, that's true. I've experienced that myself. Um, I, I do drink, but I, I, I definitely witnessed, been witness to that type of um, behavior. And it's so interesting. It's like, I don't know what that's about. The whole sort of like, come on, like, join us. Like, it's it's a weird... <laughs> hive mind sort of thing or something i think a lot of people take it as criticism Mm. of their behavior and i'm i'm pretty straight up it's like you know what if if i didn't lose the genetic lottery when it came to alcohol you know maybe i would drink because there's a lot of cool stuff around it right fancy glasses i love maraschino cherries (laughs) um (laughs) And, you know, it's harder now, too, than since a lot of recreational substances are now legal in many parts of the United States. Right. Where before I used to have the, you know, maybe someday I might need to pass some kind of, you know, security clearance test. I'd rather not fail the lie detector. But now it's like, oh, well, it's legal. And I'm still not. It's still like the cost benefit doesn't work for me. Yeah. I'm wondering how it did, like, were, was it your parents who were the ones that struggled with alcohol? Um, how, how close were you? Your dad? Uh, yeah, and he's he's passed away more than 10 years ago at this mm. point, but all four of my grandparents. I see. And was there, um, like, liver failure or any sort of, like, disease? It's really hard to, like, uh, it's... It can be hard to tease out like, okay, well, were you ill because you drink too much or just like, you know, random cosmic rays or whatever. Um, My dad actually passed away from idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, which is, uh, which is a pretty terrible lung disease. Um, Most of the people who get it are coal miners. Oh, wow. Um, or like not coal, but like asbestos. Like yeah, idiopathic yeah. here means that they don't know what caused it. Oh, I see. I see. So it's kind of random. Yeah. Oh, I'm um, sorry. No. Well, you know, obviously I miss him. Were you pretty but, close uh, to him? Uh, I don't think we were extremely close, but we had a good relationship. Yeah. Did you, when you were feeling this as a kid and kind of recognizing like you know putting the one-to-one together like okay substance means you know something that you know something negative something i don't want in my life what did you have a sense or maybe do you have a sense now that you were dealing with dealing with any sort of anxiety sort of stress worries those types of things It's hard to say. I don't consider myself a very anxious person now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I was younger, I was much more anxious, like I was more worried. Yeah. But I'm like I have a I'm in a place in my life again now where I have a fairly significant amount of control, and also I have a lot more experience. Like you know, bad stuff happens, but so far I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> um. In fact, if anything, I, I talked to someone that I worked closely with a couple of years ago, and like after our first couple of meetings, 
uh, he said to me, you know, I think you're the same as me. And I was really flattered because I thought this person was very like just a very thoughtful person, very successful. And he, they said, I think you're hypomanic. And I was like, oh, and, <laughs> and was this person a therapist or no, but they, they were, they had a lot of experience and they said yeah. that they had been told that they were hypomanic mm-hmm. and they warned me that like, you know, uh, hypomania basically is, you know, just under being manic. Um, and it's possible that when you find a serious setback, it sets you back further because you're just not used to being sad or down. Hmm. And that has definitely been the case for me when things have really gone bad. I like it's, it's very difficult because I just don't have a lot of experience with being sad. Gotcha. Yeah. That's a, um, that's a curious thing. Cause I, you know, I, I personally have lots of experience being sad. Um, I've struggled with depression my whole life and I've had some pretty traumatic experiences in it. it um, I always say that like when I'm in sort of a, a, a darker place, what tends to help me is just to remind myself that, okay, you've been there before. Uh, I know this place. You'll get through it as you did the last time, you know. Um can you give me an example of like a, a one of those experiences, one of those sort of, you know, infrequent sort of dark moments? Oh, well, I had left a job that I loved and it wasn't the right place for me anymore. And the next thing that I thought was coming wasn't 100% sure. Mm. And I, and because like I'm a dictionary editor, like I do other work at this point, but like for a long time that was, I mean, I wanted to be a dictionary editor since I was eight years old (laughs) and I have never not worked on a dictionary my entire adult life. Yeah, It has not always been my, it's not always been my primary paid gig, Mm -hmm. but I've always been working on a dictionary project. And there was this, this like trough that I was in where I was like, oh my goodness, if I'm not doing this, who am I? Mm. Yeah. And I th- I remember like not talking very much, which as you could probably understand after just talking to me for a very little while is very uncharacteristic. <laughs> and um, just not wanting to do anything at all. I think I like sat and watched old episodes of Alias and just did not feel capable of doing anything else. It's such a, um, identity challenging experience. You know, we always like, I know like I've experienced this myself where we like, we think we're a thing. We're, we're, we're this thing. I am a dictionary editor. This is my life. I am a writer or whatever. And when we experience, you know, changes in life uh, uh, obstacles or whatever that challenge that that may be telling us that oh man this may not be the case going forward like that is that's always sort of earth shattering I, I feel I think a lot of us can relate to that it was not fun hmm. um. 
But you are a dictionary editor regardless. I mean, you are, that's, that's who you are in your heart. I mean, you said it, you were eight years old, probably the only eight-year-old who ever said such a thing. <laughs> uh, that you are going to be working in dictionaries, which is such a cool thing. Well, I've always been pretty lucky, right? And, you know, nobody told my eight-year-old self, like, how unlikely it was <laughs> that I would be able to do it. I think everybody just saw, like, oh, I know what a dictionary is. Somebody's got to make them. It's so interesting because I, I, you know, I was, I had my head in a book as a kid and a lot out in the woods as well, but um, I wasn't reading dictionaries or thinking about dictionaries in that way. I was, you know, reading Jack London books and uh, wanting to be out uh, and communing with wolves. (laughs) (laughs) Dictionaries are much safer than wolves. They are. They are. I love dictionaries. I, I, I am, I, I consider myself a word nerd and I think this is a perfect sort of moment to jump into that part of your story. How, like, first, so you've been this dictionary editor for many years. You worked for um, the American uh, Oxford, Oxford yeah. English Dictionary? So, it's hard because everyone, everybody just wants to have the words Oxford English Dictionary roll off their tongues, but there are Oxford dictionaries of other Englishes. And I was the editor-in-chief for American Dictionaries for Oxford University Press. Ah, okay. Um, for about seven years. And before that, I worked on children's dictionaries for um, a textbook company in Illinois, Scott Forsman. And uh, since 2000 and, well, yeah, since 2008, I've been running WordNick in its various incarnations. And as we sort of alluded to at the top, WordNick is this online dictionary. You can, um, it's a non-for-profit Mm-hmm. We're a 501c3. It's super cool. I love it. Um, and, and we'll get into that. I, I do want to talk about, so this show is, you know, it's, it's very much about empathy. And I, I, I believe that there is a lot of, like, how we use words in the context with we use them and the intent that we have when we use those words, there's such an opportunity there for empathy, you know? I think, yes. Absolutely. And I think in part, Wordnik is, Wordnik came out of empathy in a way. Hmm. Tell me in more. That, so traditional dictionaries, of which there are many, and many of which are great, um, they're kind of based on a scarcity model, because editorial time is the scarce resource. So some words are in, and some words are out meaning they either have a traditional definition or they don't. And that's how most traditional dictionaries market themselves, right? Like every quarter you say, oh, what new words just got added? That's right. Yeah, that's interesting. But a lot of the questions I got when I worked on traditional dictionaries were, why isn't this word in? And nobody really wants the answer to that question to be money. But the answer to that question is money. Like, we don't have a big enough budget to buy all the paper at that point that would be needed to print all the words. We don't have enough money to hire all the editors who would be needed to write all the definitions to print on the pages that we don't have money to buy. I see. And 
it just made people feel bad, right? Like, (laughs) it was either people saying, I like this word, and I think it should be in the dictionary, because that's what they meant, like, in the dictionary meant to them, this is a real word that I can feel good using. Mm -hmm. Or they were mad at a word that they didn't like being in the dictionary, and they wanted it taken out so that they could be mean to other people. And yell at them for using a word that they didn't like, using the dictionary as something to beat them around the head and shoulders with. Sure. And so where Nick is arranged a little bit differently, although we still have no money. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Basically, our philosophy is that every word of English is worth recording. But instead of writing traditional dictionaries, which is really where most of the expense comes in, Um, we look for example sentences that already have been written out on the internet somewhere that explain a word in context. Because the other interesting truth is that most of the words you've learned in your life, you've never looked up in a dictionary. Yeah. So you learned them from context. Mm -hmm. You're very good at learning what words mean from context. Mm Mm-hmm. Most people are not so great at actually reading dictionary definitions, which are very sparse. And they don't include a lot of the context that people need in order to be able to not just understand what a word means, but actually use it themselves. Right. So instead of writing definitions, we just look for example sentences that use a word in a context that's rich enough to give you an idea of its meaning. And which means that we have about 10 times as many words on WordNick with some kind of data, whether that's a traditional definition or an example sentence, or even a comment left by someone who wanted to share what their understanding of a word was. 10 times as many words as the next biggest dictionary. Wow. That's impressive. English is huge. I don't think people have any idea. Like there was a study that was published in the journal Science in 2010 where they found that 52% of the unique words in the corpus that they looked at, which was the Google Books corpus, 52% were not in a traditional dictionary. Hmm. Now, to be fair, a lot of these words are kind of like morphologically complex words. So for example, the word fabulous will be in every dictionary, but unfabulous may not be. I see. But still, there's a lot out there. Yeah. Well, and what, you know, what I love, I I like, I like that you use the word scarcity at the top, uh, because you're not working in that model. You're working in a model that's about abundance and about, um, like this, like what I love about WordNick is it's like open source sort of, it's more inclusive. Like, I feel like it's more people focused. It's more about how we as lay people use language, which I feel is such a great empathetic model. I, I feel that English is for everybody. Like if you want to speak English, if you want to read English, it's for you. If you grew up speaking English, whatever variety, what comes out of your mouth is great. You know, it may not be high standard English, but it's English. And we don't, have a history of representing other non-standard varieties of English well. And everyone has bias. It's it no matter how hard you try, 
to debias yourself, it's hard. And um, when people are selecting what words get attention and this kind of illusion of merit that comes from being included in a dictionary, because dictionary editors will tell you all day long that being in a dictionary doesn't mean you're not, you know, a word or not a word, but nobody believes that. Like, in folk understanding of what words are in the dictionary is like the top checkbox. Is it in the dictionary? Check. Then it's a word. Is it gotcha. not in the dictionary? Yeah. No check. Sorry, not a word. And um, the by wordnet kind of taking that selection phase out, it doesn't make us unbiased, but it makes our bias less. I would say less strict because mm-hmm. honestly you can look up any string on WordNick and if we have data for it, we'll show you the data we have. I don't know how many words um, are looked up every day that are looked up for the first time. It's not even really something we track. The other thing about like uh, WordNick I love is that like my person, like I, you know, and I, I have an English literature degree, so I'm like, you know, maybe um, a little different, but like, I feel like, you know, as a lay person, like I always had this sense that, and I, I'm, I don't, I'm not putting these words into your mouth, this is just what I'm saying. <laughs> I always had the sense that traditional dictionaries uh, had a bit of sort of highfalutin kind of snootiness about them. <laughs> There's an air of snootiness that I always felt like, how dare they say I can't use the word fuckwad or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's just like, it. Like this is the word of the people. Like, I feel like there's a little, there's a, a great, um, there's something there about like, like these are the words of humanity. These are the words of the people that like, is like that that is more important to me than like some sort of you know and i'm again i'm like uh, casting aspersions but i i feel like that that is the side i want to be on not not the perceived snooty side (laughs) yeah it's hard i think um well famously like samuel johnson had talked about he wanted to make his dictionary to fix the language and Mm. to, and and not fix in the sense of correct, but fix in the sense of like hold still. And he wanted to do it by showing how all the quote unquote best authors used the words. And so people could use those as models. Mm -hmm. But as he got more and more into the work, he realized that what he was trying to do was impossible. You can't make English stand still. And for every example that he found of an author using a word in a way that he thought was the best way, he would find another author who he equally revered and admired who used it in a way that he thought was not the best way. I see. And um, <laughs> I, I think that there are fashions in language just as there are in clothes or music. And we associate certain kinds of language with certain types of people. And uh, we base like, you know, in group and out group distinctions on that, but the language doesn't care. It's what we bring to it. That's the problem. Right. Yeah. I, 
And I love that. I think that I, I believe that 100%. I always say to, I was just talking about this recently. I was always say, we were talking about like raising kids and I have, I have most of my friends have kids and my wife and I don't have kids. Uh, we have animals. Um, but like if we were to have a child, um, I would teach my kids that language is language and it's about audience and intent. 100%. Right? And it's also about you and your audience, right? Because mm-hmm. like sometimes I think when people leave out um when they talk about oh well you should speak in a way that's appropriate to your audience. Well, you also can't pander. Like it would be the worst kind of like horrible appropriation for me to start speaking in African American vernacular English. Yes. Because it would be it would be trying to assume membership in a community that I don't have rights to. Right. Right. But standard English belongs to everybody who wants to speak it because no one really naturally speaks standard English. Everyone has their own idiolect. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but you want to use the language variety that will cause the least amount of disconnect between you and your audience. Yes. Yes, 100%. So that's like my goal as a human, Aaron, is to connect on a level that is deep and meaningful and, and will allow each party, myself and this other person, to see each other and, and learn from each other and grow with each other. And th- the language in that growing and learning and connecting is important. It's oh, important because, and- <laughs> like, I'm I'm using it to, like, I'm thinking about my intent with those words, and I'm thinking about who I am speaking to with those words, right? Yes, and there's another thing that kind of gets tricky about intent and language and connection that that I have a lot of trouble with. Mm-hmm. Um, less so in speech, but more so in writing. I often run into people who say oh, you shouldn't use that big, sometimes they're short words, but they always say big, like unusual, rare word in your writing because it won't connect with your audience um, or, you know, it's rude or snobby. Mm, interesting. And I don't agree with this at all because we are actually now in an age of information abundance. And yes, in the early parts of the 20th century when it was very difficult to have access to the kinds of education that would let you understand 50 cent words, sesquipedalian words, Mm -hmm. um, then yeah, it would, it would be a barrier, but almost everyone now is one click or a couple of thumb taps or, you know, even an ask Siri away from knowing basically what any word ever means or at least getting an idea. And so I feel like instead of using a big word as being snobby or off-putting or rude, you're actually giving people the gift of the right word, Mm. of the precise word, 
of the jargon word that lets them be on the inside instead of the outside. And you're doing them to doing it to include them into the community of people who now know the word. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Um, it's kind of like, <laughs> imagine if you were a music critic and you could only write about bands that were in the top 40, because otherwise it was too rude to tell people about bands that like were super rare and they'd never heard of. Like, no, <laughs> when people tell you about rare bands, it's because they're like, I'm on the inside of this thing and I want you to be on the inside too. Uh-huh. Yeah, I love the um, I love the way you put that. And it's like now we we even understand that previously if people were talking to you about recipes, you had to be really careful about uh, is this ingredient available? And now again because we're in an age of sometimes absurd abundance. Um you know, when I was growing up in North Carolina in, in the 80s, I don't think I knew what lemongrass was. And I certainly wouldn't have been able to buy it. Yeah. Now, now it's in a lot of places and you can order it online if you really need it. And almost everything is like that now. Yeah, no, that's true. And that's such a, um, empowering feeling to know that, that we do have that, that knowledge at our grasp. And I I think like that is such an important part of mental health too, if we're going to take it to that, like mental health is, in improving our mental health and, and sort of looking inward and, and asking the questions, there's a lot of learning involved. We have to learn to grow. And I think that's that's the same when it comes to connecting and using language for sure. Yeah. I, I don't know. There are just so many words in English and so many of them are amazing. And I just want to share them with people <laughs> so in what's the same a, way that yeah. if you like had a you know, had a favorite band that was kind of below the radar, you'd be like, oh, you got to listen to these, these people. They're, they're so good. And I hear you say that and you have such joy in your heart when you do say it, like you clearly have a love for language and words. And like, when, when you share that with others, they're going to feel that as well. They're going to feel like, oh, like this person's excited about this word. This is exciting. I'm going to be a part of this now. I hope so. But, you know, if not, there are plenty of other people on Twitter they can follow. (laughs) (laughs) They're probably tweeting about how they hate Star Wars, uh, the last Star Wars edition and things like that. Yeah. You know, I feel like uh, (laughs) one of the things that I really, like, have tried really hard to take to heart over the last couple of years is the, the phrase, don't yuck someone else's yum. Oh, interesting. I like that. Like the fact that that you love bananas and I hate them, I'm not gonna like make a wrinkled up face every time you're eating a banana and go, "Ugh, bananas." Yeah. And I think it's even more important to do that with like cultural things, especially because so much of the despised cultural things tend to be the more feminine ones. Mm. Like, how many times have you heard somebody say, "Oh, romance novels"? Oh yeah, sure. Right? Yeah, no, that's fair. Do you know how big an industry romance novels are? Oh, it's massive. Yeah, and they're fun. So Absolutely. Don't, don't yuck someone else's yum, right? Yeah. It doesn't hurt you if the person next to you on public transit is reading a romance novel. Just let them be. Indeed. 100%. Well, you know, so Aaron, you wrote this, or you, you gave this great um, talk at DevRelCon 2018 
uh, called Documentation as Practical Empathy, which I really, truly loved. And I, I, I didn't, like, I don't know, like, I am not a coder, I'm not a developer, although I have some knowledge of it. I have done some, you know, HTML, CSS building. Um, but you gave this talk, um, and it allowed me to see go behind it's almost like let me go behind the scenes of like the the developer's mind a little bit which was really fascinating can you give me uh, a little bit about like what that talk was about for the listeners and just kind of how do you how do you come to that talk like where where did that come out of for you oh um so is it one of the DevRelCons? It was, I guess, I think it was DevRelCon London, which is an awesome conference if you're into developer relations, which is the Dev and Rel of DevRel. Um, and I had been thinking a lot about um, what makes documentation good, and a, a lot of times you think about, okay, well is documentation doing the job that it's supposed to do? Is it telling you how to do the thing? It's very practical. It's like cookbooks and, and um, maps, right? Mm -hmm. Like we look at beautiful antique maps sometimes online and we're like, these are nice as objects of art, but I'm not going to use it to like, tell me how to get across town. Sure. Um, And documentation doesn't actually live long enough to ever get to the beautiful antique stage. It's really about how do I get across town? And when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about, okay, well, if we want, if we want documentation to do its job, then we actually have to understand one thing deeper because you can't understand what the job is until you understand who the job is for. Um, and so in order to understand who the job is for, you have to like understand them as a person. And that means empathy. And, um, when I was thinking about it, I thought that, uh, you could learn a lot about empathy for your user. The thing I was thinking a lot about who else needs to have empathy for the reader. And in fact, it's novelists because if you're writing developer documentation, the developer usually has to be there because they need to do their job. Mm-hmm. If you're writing a novel, people stop reading novels all the time. You know, they just get to page 40 and they're like, ah, this isn't doing it for me. And they, they bail. Sure. And so I was thinking more about, okay, well, what are the things that we tell novelists to do? Um, to kind of keep the reader engaged. And it's mostly thinking about them. I don't think I was very coherent in talking about this, but luckily the talk's online. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a great talk. And it's like to allow me to like jump in for a moment and just say like my perception and and what I took away from the talk was what you're talking about, you know, you know, well is, is we have to think about, we should think about, the reader, when we're writing anything, when we're creating anything, we need to be thinking about the audience that that thing is for, um, because we want to create a thing where that audience is going to really glean what they need to from that document or that novel. We want them to not, you know, give up 
we want them to finish and to allow them to uh, develop m more knowledge or find entertainment in a novel or whatever it may be. And I think thinking about that end user is such an important part of really anything we create. Like I'm, I think about, you know, the audience of this podcast all the time, like what, what would be useful for them? What would be helpful? Um, I want feedback about that. Like I want, I'm, I'm thinking about trying to put myself into their shoes as, as often as I can. Yeah. And even if you think you're just writing for yourself, you're really writing for your future self who might even be a completely different person. Oh, that's true. Um, <laughs> so you still have to think about your audience, even if you're just, you know, writing a journal. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really, it's really fascinating and I, I loved it and I'll make sure to link, link it in the show notes. And I, um, I'm actually, oh, I should share you. it with my, uh, my boss. Cause I, I think he, he's kind of a, He's got a, a bit of a nerd brain like yours, Aaron, and he, he <laughs> likes documentation. I think he'll appreciate the talk. Um, I, I did want to talk a little bit about, um, like you being in, so you're, you're in, you're an interesting case because, uh, not a case, you're a human being, <laughs> goodness. <laughs> you're a human being. Um, you have like this word nerd side of you, this language side of you, but you also are this developer coder, which is so, which is such a, I think, beautiful juxtaposition, uh, which allows you into, you know, do all sorts of different interesting things. I had a conversation I, with, mm -hmm. sorry, I, oh, what, no, I, what I'm leading to is I'm curious about that space, that world, the space of coding, developing, technology, there's a perception that we have as a culture that like that space is kind of um, not brutal, but like less heartfelt, less vulnerable, less like, you know, it's filled with uh, dudes. Um, and, you know, maybe that's, that's the stereotype. <laughs> But I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit, um, if that, if any of that rambling makes sense. <laughs> there are certainly a lot of dudes, <laughs> um, but I, I think we have this perception of coding as this very like, oh, you must be so rational and so logical, and it's all about math, and it's, I, it's, it's language. We call them programming languages. I love JavaScript because it is almost as quirky as English. It's got weird corners. It's got idioms. Um, I love coding a lot. And I think that um, people don't acknowledge, or at least they don't talk about, like, the incredible highs and lows you get coding. It mm. feels very poetic in a way. Like, if... If you're writing some, if you're writing something that's not code, right? If you're writing in English, and you you get that one metaphor or that that phrase that just makes you feel so good, like ah, oh, this is my darling. I'm probably gonna have to kill it later, but I'm really proud of this right now. Coding is like that bumped up because you get this immediate gratification of feedback when something works. And if it doesn't work, you're just so engrossed to like, oh my goodness, how can I make this work? Um, I really enjoy it. 
it's very little math, at least the kind that I do. Um, and the great thing about JavaScript, if it is tricky math, you really shouldn't do it yourself. You should like use a well-regarded package that someone else wrote to let you do it. Right. Um, like there's this amazing uh, library called Moment that just handles everything that you could possibly ever need dealing with time. Oh. Makes it very simple, um, or at least straightforward. And uh, I, <laughs> I think both writing and coding is about making something that didn't exist in the world exist. Mm. And coding feels very magical to me, like in the kind of like Harry Potter sense in that I, I say this incantation and something happens in the real world. Oh yeah. And I also feel that, um, there's this, it's, it's, hard for people who are to have been traditionally underrepresented in tech sometimes to get a foothold but i have found and again i'm a very lucky person that sometimes it's been easier for people to dismiss my writing as like oh you know chick writing right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but if my code works if it does the thing it's supposed to do they might complain that it's not elegant or, you know, that it, uh, it's not as efficient as it could be, but it works. It does the thing. Right. Um, so I, it's you, yeah. provable in a way that right. like an yeah. essay is not provable. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. Like, that's such a beautiful way to say it because you are like, you are creating this thing. You're building this. I love the, because you're right, they're called programming languages. It is a language. And you set out, I like that you have that sort of instant feedback of like, oh, I'm, I'm, I have uh, this uh, object or I have this goal to create this thing. I have this, this thing in my mind. I know what I want to create. And I build the language to create that thing. And then I see it. And it may not work exactly as I thought. So, you know, and then you go back and sort of tinker with that language to make it work. Um, it's yeah. probably very validating. It is super fun. And like, I have often been like, I work on WordNinks pretty much every Sunday. That's my like work on WordNink day. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad sometimes that it's Sunday because it also means that my husband is home. And mm. when I fix something, I can go out and bore him with the details of it was broken in this way. And I tried this thing and it didn't work. And I tried this thing and it didn't work. And then I tried this other thing and it worked. And he's gotten very good at being like, that's awesome. Uh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it's very gratifying when things work. And it's also very engrossing in that, um, I love trying to figure out at what level the problem is. Like, for instance, imagine that you're trying to bake a cake and your cake comes out terrible. And, okay, well, maybe my oven isn't at the right temperature. Is it at that level? Maybe I used the wrong pan. Is it at that level? Mm. Maybe my baking soda has gone off. Is it at that level? like trying to bound the problem in such a way that I can test whether the problem is actually at the level that I think it is at. 
Right. Like, is, is it, my network actually connected? Let's try that first. Is it plugged in? Exactly. Uh, it's such <laughs> a good right critical there. thinking exercise. And I love trying to, like, my research nerd co hat comes out when I'm, like, trying to figure out, like, is this, because I don't have a classical computer science education. I took one class in computer science in high school and one in college, both of them to get out of taking extra math. <laughs> like, I literally took computer science computer programming as a liberal art in college because it meant I didn't have to take calculus or statistics. That seems like the right route. It was great. It was <laughs> a fantastic class. I really loved it. We used this program called HyperCard, which is something old computer nerds really love. Um, but yeah, like I, since I don't have a classical computer science background, sometimes I don't even know the right word for what I want to do. So it's a lot of like, diagnostic googling <laughs> in yeah. terms of oh okay i want to do this thing and that is actually someplace where i am super grateful to people for whom english is not their first language and who are very active in programming communities because often the way that they describe a, a problem because they also don't have the technical language in some cases mm -hmm. is what leads me to the right place oh wow I love that. So I, I'm coming at, like, my lack of knowledge is coming from a completely different path as their lack of knowledge. Like, they know the concept. They don't know the English for it. Right. I don't know the technical term for it. And we're both trying to describe it in, like, shorter English ways. Uh-huh. Wow. And we both end up on Stack Overflow at the end. <laughs> um, so what? how does the... How does your coding developing play into WordNick? Like what, like you said, Sundays are for WordNick days. What kinds of problems are you troubleshooting? Well, WordNick's going to be 10 years old uh, in June. Exciting. Congratulations. And, thank you. Um, the website part will be 10 years old in June. And so, like, people think that you build, you know, you write a program once and that's it. But, like, everything is always in flux. So you might depend on another service that's changing their interface and then you have to change the way that you talk to it. Mm. Or, you know, like you might... Like an API? Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Or you might, um, you might rely on um, software that's changing its version <laughs> and then you have to change your version. Sure. And, you know, there's always bugs that you want to fix. Um, and I am like the full stack developer for WordNick. I do all the things. So if our hosting provider says, hey, this machine is going out of service, I have to make sure that everything is transferred to a new machine. Or if our database is suddenly like no longer supported, then I have to move everything to a new database. How does WordNick keep going? Is it just you and then the people who, like me, who, you know, give a little money every year? Pretty much. That's how it works right now. We also have a lot of people who use our WordNick API as a paid service. Oh. Not a lot of people, okay. but more than there used to be. Because we used to not charge people at all when we were a startup and we're trying to get, do startup-y things. Um. Yeah, so people can either support WordNick by adopting a word, like you did, or you, if you have an application that could use, you know, a cup of dictionary data stirred into it, 
you could use our API to get that data. We also have a data set that's downloadable and embeddable if you make word games and you don't want to have your game need to connect to the internet just to add definitions. You can license our word game set. Oh, neat. Yeah. And we occasionally get some small grants here and there. Um, we run ads, but if you're a logged in word, Nick, you never see ads while you're browsing the site. Gotcha. Gotcha. We only show ads to the drive-by users. Yeah. And, like, how are you guys growing? Like, how, like, what is, what does that look like? What's your growth look like? It is growing a little bit. Like, every quarter we send out more API keys than we did before. Our traffic is fairly stable in terms of people just coming to the website. So, I'm hoping towards the end of this year that I can improve our SEO a little bit. Mm -hmm. But I actually am enjoying the fact that that like Wordic is fairly stable, knockwood, you know, right now yeah. because dictionary projects take a really long time, and I feel really lucky in that I'm still alive, <laughs> and um, like most. Most dictionary editors who have ever lived have died before they saw their projects come to fruition. Wow. Like if they were there at the beginning, they didn't make it to the end. Right. And I mean, it's very humbling to think about that. And it's, it's very, I feel a lot of gratitude that I mean, I was able to start this as a venture-backed startup. It did not make enough money to justify being a venture-backed startup. And my investors were such stand-up people that they were like, we love WordNick. We want it to keep existing. We're just going to give it to you to set up as a nonprofit. Wowzers. Because at that point, like legally, they owned it. Uh -huh. I would have had no recourse if they had said, yeah, you know, we're done. We're just going to shut everything down. Right. They would be perfectly within their rights to do so. And then, of course, it was like, oh, my goodness, I've gotten this baby, but I have never taken care of a baby like this before. Like, I was just technical enough at WordNick to know that I wasn't technical enough to build the thing. Uh -huh. So then when it became totally my responsibility, it was like, okay, Aaron, guess you're going to learn DevOps and how to write a lot of JavaScript and how to maintain a lot of fairly old code. Wow. That's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. And, um, and I did get to work on it full time for a couple of years um, mm -hmm. while I was transitioning things over. But then, you know, my son was going to go to university and I figured I should probably get a real job that paid actual money. <laughs> um, and both the places I've worked since then have been very flexible in terms of like, yeah, we love that you do work, Nick. Keep doing it. Nice. Oh, yeah. It's been great. And it's it's helped me a lot because when I started working in developer relations, like, I had a lot of empathy for the developer because the developer was me. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah, I know exactly how it feels to not know how something works and need to read the documentation in 10 minutes because everything is crashing. <laughs> And what, so WordNick, 10-year anniversary in June, what is, what is your ultimate goal? 
with Wordnik? Like every word of English for everyone, everywhere. Okay, <laughs> there it is. Yeah, it was pretty. You know, it was very easy to say, not so easy to do. Right. Like, I, I'm trying to basically rebuild the ship while it's running. So the APIs that power the site, I actually was working on updating those this morning. We have new data from American Heritage that I'm very slowly getting up onto the site. Um, the American Heritage people are amazing, by the way. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, Steve from American Heritage, he does the podcast with Corey. Yeah, Steve yeah, Klein. Klein Edler. Klein Edler, yeah. Very, yeah. W- very wordy name. <laughs> He's awesome. Um, and then just trying to keep, just trying to keep making everything a little bit better every week if I can. And it's just you doing this work? Yeah. Which is like a miracle of technology, right? Because like, so my joke, my joke, which is a little too close to true, is that dictionary making started out as something that cranks did as amateurs for the love of it. Mm. Like think of Johnson, think of Webster, right? They barely made any money from dictionaries at all. Uh, I think Johnson was actually in the red. Uh, Webster made all his money from spelling manuals. Um, and then like over a couple hundred years, dictionary making lexicography got professionalized and it was a nice middle-class job that you had. And now um, because when was the last time anybody you knew, you know, paid for a print dictionary or any dictionary service at all? Um, it is now something that people do as amateurs, again, for the love of it in their spare time. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, I also joke that if I didn't have this as a hobby, I would just waste my time on Sundays, you know, I don't know, gardening or something. <laughs> You don't like gardening? <laughs> uh, you know, I just, as a hobby, it, I could have a weirder hobby uh-huh. that would take up all my time on Sundays. Sure, sure. A little bit more during the week. Gotcha. I could, I could make those robots that fight each other. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, your avatar is a pink robot. <laughs> I've had that avatar now for like 20 years. Did you illustrate that? No, it's Dover clip art that I made pink. Oh, it's hilarious. Yeah, I, you know, I think I just liked it and started using it as my avatar. And uh, now it's my thing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love it. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I, again, I'm such a huge fan of Wardnick. I, I love everything that it represents. Um I feel that it is very inclusive and in, in, uh, coming from a place of abundance and thinking of the people. And like, for me, that's, that's the beauty of it. And, um, and it's why I support it. And I hope it continues to kind of go on and is able to achieve all the words. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad that what Word Nick wants to be when it grows up resonates so much with so many people. Yeah, totally. Well, let's, um, we always kind of start wrapping up the show talking about empathy heroes. These are people in our lives we know personally, or they could be authors, uh, they could be characters from books or movies, uh, anyone who is just a good empath. 
Uh, I'll go first to give you a moment to think on that, Aaron. Um, my empathy hero this week is uh, Mary Oliver, and it's a quote oh. from uh, Wild Geese, and it's something I really enjoy, this quote. Uh, she says, quote, you must not ever stop being whimsical, and you must not ever give anyone else the responsibility for your life, end quote. Um, that one resonated with me in particular, uh, considering, uh, you know, sort of my experiences this past weekend, um, because it's true. Like we, we, especially as I'm someone who's in therapy and, and processing traumas from childhood and things like that, it is easy to go to the oh, my parents did this to me. It's my parents' fault sort of well. And I think I, I get that. I've been there before. But it's so much more fruitful and beautiful and uh, real if we can just take that on ourselves and we don't allow those traumas to kind of define us or allow other people to um, take responsibility for our own lives and and that's the beauty of living is we have responsibility of our own lives and, and we can do so much good with that responsibility. So that Mary Oliver quote really kind of resonated with me and that's why she's my empathy hero this week. Oh, that's so lovely. I love Mary Oliver and I'm sad that she is gone. Yeah. Um, there's actually a Mary Oliver poem pinned next to my monitor right now. But don't hesitate. And it says, if you suddenly and unexpectedly feel joy, don't hesitate. Give in to it. Oh, I love that. Um, yeah, she was a good one. I actually think of this Shirley Jackson short story basically every day mm-hmm. of my life. It's called One Ordinary Day with Peanuts. <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah, and it's it's kind of an obscure story. At least I think I've never run into anybody who said, oh, I love that story too. Um, but in it, this guy in New York, he just kind of, he he's magical and he just does nice things for people all day. Like, he helps some people find an apartment and he matchmakes two people on the street and he, he gives a homeless guy money to like get a meal. And there's a twist at the end that I will not ruin for you. But I have to say that there are a lot of days where I just like, on my commute into work or just in the grocery store, all of a sudden I think, what would the ordinary day with peanuts guy do right now? Mm. And he would make funny faces at the baby who's having a fit and make it laugh or hold the door open for somebody or, you know, give the homeless guy a dollar. And so that's what I think about a lot. Cause I would like to be the one ordinary day with peanuts guy. <laughs> that's so lovely. It's such a good story. I and the end is this. so good. I, you know, I, being a, a book nerd, um, I, I have, uh, I feel sad that I've never read any Shirley Jackson. She is amazing. I've and there's a, like a bio, her autobiography, like Life Among the Savages is really funny. Um, and there's like a new biography, I think, that just came out of her that's supposed to be really good that's on my wish list. Okay. Yeah. I, I need to, I need to read, read Shirley Jackson. Um, you probably did read at least one Shirley Jackson story in school because everyone has read the lottery. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But that I don't think is her best one. 
Okay. <laughs> well, I'll make sure to include that, this, the peanuts uh, story that you referenced, uh, link that in the show notes for listeners. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Because more people should read it. It is a great story. Yeah. Um, well, Aaron, where, where can people connect with you and, 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 uh, learn more about WordNick and all that stuff? Oh, well, wordnick.com is a pretty good place to go. W-O-R-D-N-I-K, like Beatnik or Sputnik. Um, <laughs> and I'm just E. McKean on Twitter. Um, I don't use Facebook anymore. <laughs> and if you want to connect wise. me, if you want to connect with me with link, at link, on LinkedIn, then please like have a reason to do so. Like, <laughs> I'm studying linguistics or... Um, I think your great aunt is my great aunt too. That kind of thing. Those are good reasons. I like that. <laughs> yeah. It's just the like invitations that come out of the blue that I never know what to do with. Yeah. I, I ignore I all ignore. of those. Yeah. I, I get those and I'm just like, why, why? Like I, and I, it's always like, uh, someone who has, you know, maybe 10 different, um, like, us, uh, I guess, uh, titles um it's like <laughs> seo powered business driven superstar you know and it's just like yeah you this is not genuine right i don't i feel like there's some people who are on these sites like is a way of playing pokemon they want to collect the whole set <laughs> they just want to like get everyone uh-huh yeah um and i don't really like i, I it's not fun. No, no, it's not fun. It's not fun to be collected. No, no, I never evolve either, really. Yeah. It's a waste of their time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for being on You Me Empathy. I really appreciate you, friend. Oh, that's so kind of you. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed talking with you. Of course. And to you listeners, as I always say, I'm here, you're here. We're here together on this wayward, overwhelming, awe-inspiring pale blue dot we have each other. It's you, me, empathy. Mm-hmm.